This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today. science of cheese. I'm your host, Claire, and today we're going to talk about microbes. Ever had that moment? Maybe it's late at night and you're rummaging in the fridge for a late night snack or some friends drop by unannounced and you're reaching in the crisper drawer for that hunk of cheese you know you bought just last week. And out comes this totally fuzzy and moldy thing that while your brain registers logically this is cheese, your body is like, oh, gross. I'm not eating that. And yet, in the back of your mind, you hear a whisper. Well, isn't all cheese mold? And you have this momentary tiff with your inner voice that ends with, But why is this gross? I don't want to eat it. On this episode of Behind the Rhine, we'll take a tour of the microbial zoo, where we'll meet mold, bacteria, and yeast. The three microbes that dominate the tiny ecosystems of cheese. We'll learn how they thrive, how they affect flavor, how they get along, and how they end up in cheese in the first place. You're probably used to hearing about these microbes in a negative context. Bacteria is the stuff that makes you sick. It's germs and food poisoning. Yeasts are yeast infections, and mold probably conjures up images of slimy black bathtub grout or the blue fuzz growing on those oranges that you forgot to eat. If a genie offered to magically rid your life of these three microbes with the snap of a finger you might be tempted to take him up on the offer. Just think of it. No more Ebola, no more common cold, no more throwing out rotten food. But our world would quickly fall apart without these buggers. In a world without microbes, plants would cease to grow because bacteria takes nitrogen and carbon from the air and converts it into usable components for photosynthesis. All cows, sheep, and goats would die because they need microbes in their gut to break down their cellulose-rich diet. And we would drown in our own garbage without all the fungi and bacteria that decompose waste. Microbes are essential to human life. I mean, your body alone is comprised of more bacteria cells than you cells. On average, 39 trillion bacteria cells to 30 trillion human cells. Thanks, fact man. Oh, I'm so rude. Uh, I didn't introduce you guys. Listeners, meet fact man. Fact man, meet everybody. Thankfully, this is not our fate. And in the realm of cheese, bacteria, yeast, and moles are actually essential actors in an intricate script that produces healthy and safe cheese. So how do these three microbes impact how a cheese tastes? Well, bacteria, yeast, and mold are decomposers of their ecosystems. They break it down. The simple answer is that these three microbes break down proteins and fats in cheese. And flavor comes from how proteins are broken down and the length of fatty acid chains that fats are broken into. 
For example, most fat in milk is packaged as a triglyceride, which is cute and compact, but we can't really access the flavor. But then these microbes come along and start clipping the fatty acids off, and all of a sudden, they're free. Those free fatty acids are now detectable by us as flavor and aroma. And depending on the length of the fatty acid, the flavor is different. For example, ever tasted a cheese that tasted rancid or like baby vomit? That's probably the super short fatty acid chain known as butric acid. Or what about that classic goaty flavor that people either love or hate? That's a medium length fatty acid called caprylic acid. And it's actually way more complex than that, but that's for another episode. Yay! Another thing to note is that molds, yeast, and bacteria don't have inherent flavor per se. Like if you took a big bite of bacteria, it's not going to taste like cheddar. Rather, these microbes react and break down their environment to change flavor. Think of it like a barbecue versus sauce. Imagine you have a piece of raw chicken. You can put the chicken on the barbecue and cook it, or you can put some sauce on it while it's still raw. Both result in a chicken that tastes different, but the barbecue, like microbes, is chemically altering the chicken and adding some volatile aromas and flavor changes. If you took a metallic bite out of your barbecue, it doesn't taste like the smoky finished product of your grilled chicken, but it does set off a chain of chemical reactions that fundamentally change the flavor from raw to cooked chicken. Let's get started on our tour of the microbial zoo. We'll start our tour with the largest of these three microbes, mold. Mold belongs to the kingdom of fungi. Some people say fungi, some people say fungi. Fungi get their food by decomposing their environment into bite-sized things they can eat. Blue cheese is the easiest place to see mold, and Francis Roquefort Blue is famous for it. Legend goes that a young shepherd was tending a sheep at the base of a mountain in southern France when he saw a fine-looking shepherdess walking by, and he stashed his lunch of rye bread and sheep's milk cheese in a nearby cave to go chase after her. Cool, cool, but we just hope and remembers that no means no, right? Who knows how long, days, weeks, months pass. When he returns to his hidden lunch, he finds that both the rye bread and the cheese is covered with green mold. However, having already proven himself to be someone who makes rash decisions, he takes a bite of the cheese, realizes it's delicious, and Roquefort is born. So what happened in the cave? Well, there's a mold aptly named Penicillium roqueforti that thrives in the soil of these damp limestone caves, but it can also be found in other places around the world. Molds have pretty unrefined palates. They basically eat anything made of carbon. That means leaves, wood, as a real treat, bread. So the shepherd's rye bread is basically like an all-inclusive resort with unlimited booze and free Wi-Fi for the Penicillium roqueforti hanging out in the soil of these French caves. Like teenagers back from college for summer break, they move in and they think they'd totally run the place. Once they've had their fill with the bread, they start jumping over to the cheese. Roquefort is still made in these humid limestone caves to this day. It gets its classic green-blue veins from being pierced with needles, which introduces oxygen into the interior of the cheese, giving the dormant Penicillium roqueforti a breath of fresh air and the oxygen it needs to really start growing. 
It's funny, there seems to be a common thread of love-struck and absent-minded cheesemakers. Italy's gorgonzola blue is said to have been invented in much the same way, when an Italian cheesemaking Romeo, probably making a soft cheese like Stracchino, is sidetracked by his girlfriend, hastily bundles up his cheese curds and hangs them for the night so he can go hang with her. He comes back the next morning and adds fresh cheese curds to the mix to try to cover up his mistake. It's not until a few weeks later that the blue mold starts to show, but blue cheese molds are not the only molds in cheese. Penicillium camemberti, also known as Penicillium candidum, is responsible for the nice white rind on most Brie and Camembert style cheeses. Molds are fluffy and kind of adorable when you look at them up close. They have a big puffball appearance that's made up of millions of tiny filaments that extend out like roots in search of nutrients. That's why so many soft-ripened cheeses are referred to as bloomy-rinded cheeses, because before they get schmooshed and wrapped in plastic and shipped off to your grocery store, that white rind is actually kind of fluffy. Mold's filaments are made mostly of a substance called chitin, which, fascinatingly enough, is also the same material that forms much of the exoskeletons of insects and crustaceans. Okay, mold recap. Molds are fluff balls that basically eat anything made of carbon. Common ones are Penicillium rocaforti and Penicillium camemberti. And they affect the flavor of cheese by breaking down fats and proteins. That's right. Okay, bacteria. So bacteria have their own kingdom, (laughs) and there are a lot of them. Also, bacteria eat a lot of different things, but in the case of cheese, the bacteria that eat lactose or lactic acid are especially important to us. The main two families of lactic acid bacteria are the lactococci and the lactobacilli. And spoiler, they probably will make you an offer you can't refuse. They're called lactic acid bacteria because they eat lactose, or milk sugar, and turn it into lactic acid. By digesting lactose and pumping out lactic acid, these bacteria are essentially lowering the pH of the milk, making it more acidic. If you remember from our last episode, lowering the pH of the milk is crucial in helping coagulate the milk and also effectively safeguards it from other bad microbes that could only survive in a neutral pH. But just like any good mafia movie, the lactic acid bacteria die off quite quickly. When they do, they burst open like pinatas and spill their enzymes all in the cheese. The enzymes don't know that they're not in bacteria anymore, so they just continue on their merry way to break down fats and proteins inside the cheese. There are also bacteria that sing backup in cheese, like Lactobacillus helveticus. We call these bacteria adjunct starters. These bacteria are essential in creating flavor and texture. Lactobacillus helveticus is often added to goudas to develop a sweet flavor and to encourage the growth of tyrosine, or those crunchy amino acid crystals that everybody loves. And lastly, there are bacteria like Propionibacterium that take center stage after the first round of pH-dropping lactic acid bacteria start to die off and explode. 
Bacteria like these are often called non-starter lactic acid bacteria, or NSLAB for short, because they start munching up lactic acid. In the case of Propiani bacterium, they convert this lactic acid into carbon dioxide, which produces those eyes or those little holes that everybody is so familiar with in Swiss cheese. All right, recap. The most important bacteria for cheese is lactic acid bacteria that ends up eating lactose and burping up lactic acid. And how do bacteria affect flavor? By breaking down fats and proteins. Okay, so the next question is, how are all these microorganisms ending up in cheese in the first place? How do they get there? The answer is that some of them are intentionally added by cheesemakers, like lactic acid starter bacteria at the beginning of the cheesemaking process, or Penicillium camemberti, or Penicillium roqueforti. And some are introduced by the environment itself, like yeasts and some adjunct starters. There are microbes in raw milk, microbes from the animal's udder. There are ambient microbes where they make cheese, and microbes that inhabit the aging rooms. Like the shepherd's rye bread in the Roquefort Cave in France, microbes are all around us and they often hitch a ride on cheese. There's a well-known story of a cheesemaker in New York who in 1891 started making a cheese called Liederkranz. It's a stinky washed rind cheese that's similar to Limburger. In 1926, the company moved their operations to Ohio, and along with them, they brought all their equipment, starter cultures, and a lot of their employees. The wooden shelves that aged the Liederkranz cheese, however, stayed in New York. Many attempts to start making Liederkranz at the new plant were not successful. For some reason, the cheese just wasn't turning out right. It wasn't until the cheesemakers smeared the residue from the old wooden aging boards on the walls of the new cheesemaking facility that finally the cheese returned. This is a classic example of bacteria that are not intentionally added by the cheesemaker, but are in the environment and crucial to the cheese's unique flavor. One really cool example of this was found in a study by Dr. Rachel Dutton at her lab at Harvard. She's now at UC San Diego, where she and her team studied the bacteria on the rinds of 137 different cheeses from 10 countries. Out of all of the bacteria that they found on these rinds, two in particular stood out. What was weird about these two bacteria was that they typically grow in the ocean. So if you're making cheese in Wisconsin or Switzerland, how are marine bacteria making it onto your cheese? The speculation is that these ocean bacteria are hitching rides on the sea salt used in cheeses. And for the kicker, guess what these bacteria's favorite habitat is? Chitin! They usually live on the exoskeletons of crustaceans in the ocean, and now they're thriving on the chitin-rich molds that live on cheese. Crazy. It's crazy. So this leads us to our next question. Do these microbes even like each other? I mean, they're squished on the rinds of cheeses and everywhere around us. Do they like each other? Do they hate each other? Well, evolution and survival of the fittest might dictate that everyone competes for the available nutrition. And partly that's right. Think of the antibiotic penicillin. Penicillin is derived from penicillium, a mold, and penicillin kills bacteria. 
well, it actually makes bacteria explode, which is even cooler. So molds produce chemicals that make bacteria explode. And to fight back, bacteria can secrete enzymes called chitinases that dissolve molds basically turn them into like a gross slurpee. Scientists have long conceptualized bacteria and fungi as enemies of each other. And while that's partly true, it's not the whole story. A recent discovery was made by Dr. Benjamin Wolf's lab at Tufts University, where he observed bacterium hitching a ride on the filaments or roots of the cheese's mold network. When they tested this theory, they found that bacteria traveled farther when they were cultured in petri dishes with mold. So maybe mold and bacteria are patching up their tumultuous past. One microbe we've kind of left out is yeast. This is because often yeast isn't intentionally added by cheesemakers. Rather, it's often just floating by and happens to find a comfy and nutritious home in cheese. Yeast are the long-lost grandsons of molds. Much smaller than molds, but still bigger than bacteria, yeast also belong to the kingdom of fungi. In cheese, one of the most common yeasts is Debromyces hansoni, or hansen, as I like to call this yeast, is super cool and what we call an extremophile because it thrives in extreme conditions. While delicate baker's yeast can only withstand about 10% salt solution, Hansen can survive in up to 25% salt solution. Hansen I also prefers low moisture, low pH, low temperatures. It's useful in metabolizing lactic acid and really affects the bacterial community in a cheese. One of the more complex yeasts found in cheese is Geotrichum candidum. This yeast gives cheese rinds the beautiful intricate pattern of squiggles and the aroma of buttery flatulence, as scientist Benjamin Wolf puts it. One of my favorite places to find this yeast is on an aged goat cheese called Coupole from Vermont Creamery. You can check out BehindTheRind.com for pictures. But what's odd is that this microbe appears fuzzy like a mold, but behaves like a yeast. Recently, a team of French scientists shed some light on why Geotrichum candida is having an identity crisis. These scientists sequenced and analyzed the entire DNA of Geotrichum candidum and compared it to other known yeasts and molds. Kind of like trying to finish a puzzle of a massive family tree, except your dog ate half the pieces. They found that Geotrichum candidum has actually retained some moldy tendencies from its ancestors. Like, for example, it produces a lot of chitin, which, as you remember, is responsible for mold's fluffy appearance. Okay, recap. Yeast plays a supporting role to mold and bacteria in cheesemaking, but common ones are Debromyces hansoni and Geotrichum candidum. And how does yeast affect flavor? By breaking down fats and proteins. Awesome kids. So, what do you do with that hunk of moldy cheese you're still holding in your hand? The USDA says if it's a hard cheese, just cut off the mold and keep going. I say that as well. They say if it's a soft cheese, throw it away. I say if it's a soft cheese, cut a little bit more generously around the mold. Let it air out for about 10 minutes if it happens to smell like ammonia. If you don't know what ammonia smells like, go take a whiff of Windex. Smells like kind of like that. So if it smells like ammonia, let it air out for about 10 minutes and then reassess. 
If it still smells like ammonia or you taste it and it tastes very bitter, kindly show it to the trash. I know we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of science today, but hopefully remember that mold, yeast, and bacteria under the watchful eye of master cheesemakers are crucial elements to beautiful cheese. I'd like to thank the scientists who are hard at work studying these microbes in cheese firsthand. Rachel Dutton, Benjamin Wolf, thank you. And as a friendly disclaimer, while I dedicate a ton of time researching and writing these episodes, I'm a trained cheesemonger first and a scientific enthusiast second. For a complete list of resources for each episode, please visit BehindTheRhine.com. If you have any comments or questions, don't hesitate to email me at Claire at Behind the Rind. Thank you for tuning in. Tune in next month for more stories and science from Behind the Rind. cheese lovers cheese whiz gina here and i invite you to subscribe to our noon on tuesday podcast to hear all about cheese all the time you can listen on itunes or soundcloud or subscribe via feed burner under noon on tuesday you can also watch us live every week on facebook at venissimo cheese at you guessed it noon every tuesday pacific time we're fun we're cheesy so tune in and tell your friends to tune in too ciao